specifically the last sentence. The post went out being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was, the decree was given in Shushan the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Shushan was perplexed. So this post goes out. We're not talking about a new phone book here. We're not talking about, hey, um, Miss June has uh, an, an announcement about a change in a service that's going out by email. If you're a Jew on this date at this time, everyone in the kingdom has permission to come for you to take your life. And that, that goes out everywhere. Notice the king and Haman. They sit down to have a drink. Good day's work right there. Are you with me? That's chapter 3. All right, now turn to chapter 7. So Esther has gone to the king after fasting. God has given her favor with the king. And now she's invited the king and Haman to a banquet. And then she asked them to come back to a second one. And in between all of, those, all of that, a whole lot of other stuff has happened. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice specifically King Ahasuerus' response So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen, and the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, what is thy petition, Queen Esther, and it shall be granted thee, and what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the, enemies, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage." Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he? And where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up, to make request for his life, that there was, to make request to his, oh, I'm sorry, and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was, and this would have been like a couch in Eastern culture where they, they eat in a reclined position. And then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And that is an execution-style preparation that someone who is worthy of death is not fit to see the light. And so they're covered until their life is taken. In verse 9, in Harbona, one of the chamberlains said before the king, Behold also, The gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. 
This is what you notice about King Ahasuerus from chapter 3 to chapter 7. Extreme fluctuation. And, and I'll get back to this eventually, but at the end of verse number 10, I want to ask this question. Don't answer it, just think. Should his wrath have been pacified? Or did he just get to express another extreme fluctuation of emotion in his life? And therefore it was satisfied, and so now he feels better. And we want to look at how we all at times can have a little bit of a King Ahasuerus in us. And ask the Lord to help us to be steady and to be anchored to truth as we live our lives. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your love for us and for being good to us. Thank you for the examples that are recorded. And God, the, the record is not an endorsement of certain behaviors. It is certainly, though, a reminder of, of what men and women can be and also of what we should be and uh, of how effective we can be or how ineffective we can be. And so, Lord, as we look at this contrast between the king in chapter 3 and the king in chapter 7, I pray that you would help us to get the, the application of truth here and that we would be honest about ourselves and responsive to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thanks so much for standing. All right, I'm going to ask, um, I, need a, I need a guide, a volunteer. I didn't talk to one of you yet, so I need a guide, a volunteer, and don't all do it at once in like three seconds. Okay, Ben, come on, come on up here real fast. Now, you're going to have to be very expressive and emotional. Are you good with that? No, 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 that's not good enough. Are you good with that? Yes, yes, Pastor, I'm good with that. Fist bump, all right, thank you. All right, and then I need Maddie to come on up here. All right, so, so we're getting ready for Christmas. How many of y'all excited about Christmas? All right, did y'all notice that we did not sing Christmas songs yet? Because it's still November. Christmas lights will go up on my house this week, not before December, though. Celebrate Thanksgiving, hallelujah. Anyway, okay, I'm done. Just wanted to get that out there. All right. And full disclaimer, Andrea has started decorating Christmas decorations in the house, but not the whole house, hallelujah. I held back the tide some. Anyway, so I'd, I'm enjoying this. I have no idea. I'm assuming that these two, Ben and Maddie, that they are, they, I'm not assuming, I know that they're good kids and uh, that they are composed and appreciative and thankful. But let's just pretend on Christmas morning for a moment, 2020, they're not. And you can blame it on COVID, blame it on whatever you want to, I don't care. But on Christmas morning, you're not. Now, you know what it's like to be really excited about a gift. You also know what it's like to think you're going to be excited about the gift, and then to find socks. Now look, I'm excited about good socks. Got the penguin thing going tonight, Christmas penguins. Oh, I'm sorry, man, I'm breaking my own rule. Anyway, I am a hypocrite. Um, I, I like, look, I get excited about a good pair of socks, the right, the right kind of socks. But I'm, I'm talking about the tube socks that go up to your knees, and it's like, praise the Lord. I could have just, in, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying it's right. Can you, re- are you relating with me? And then I know what it's like as a kid to get these, man, just, this is amazing. Um, uh, when I was, I think, 13 or, or 12, something like that, um, uh, my brother and I 
each got shotguns for Christmas. Hallelujah. What a blessing. It was a good day. Yes! Okay, so you're going to be really disappointed about your Christmas present. No, 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 that's not good enough. This is, this is how you're going to be. You don't love me, Dad and Mom. That's exactly, no, stand up. This is the job, bro. I want two stumps. I want a squeaky, high pitch. Yes. You don't love me, Dad and Mom. That's exactly what I want. You're going to be excited. Okay. Got it? Okay. I'll do it slower. Oh, daddy, you're the best daddy in the whole world. I love you so much. You got it? And I want you to, I want you to sell people on this, all right? You say, we have no idea what's going on. Neither do I. I'm, I'm just kidding. All right. You ready? You open it up. Go. Dad, I hate you. Why? Good. Man, that's Oscar worthy right there. Good job. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> that, that was solid. That was solid. You must, you must have experience with that. <laughs> all right. All right. Maddie, you ready? You open it up. What, what, what do you want? Like, what's your dream? A horse? A pony? Yeah. A pony. You open it up, and there's a pony. <laughs> you had a big tree. <laughs> Hope your dad remembered to poke holes in the box so it could breathe, <laughs> or else it'll be asleep. Okay, sorry. I'm done. I'm done. Go ahead, Maddie. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Look, I, no, no, no. You don't have to look at me. I just, just wherever. All right, look at your mom back there. It's like, Daddy, I love you so much. Thank you. You're the best daddy in the whole world. Do that. Just do it. You're the best. Daddy, I love you so much. You're the best daddy in the world. Thank you. Yeah, pretty good job. All right. All right, so, so imagine, imagine. You recognize the extremes, right? Okay. Oh, this is terrible. You don't love me. This is awesome. You're the best in the whole world. You recognize the fluctuation. Imagine that being in one person. Now, for some teenagers, it is. <laughs> it's some teenagers, some children, parents can go from you're amazing to you're the worst. If you really loved me and cared about me, how could you do this to me? You know what I'm talking about. I, all, in, all in one person. And we can sit up here and laugh about it, but you have, you have within the, the potential within one individual, you can have those extreme fluctuations. Y'all did a great job. Thank you very much. You can be seated. Here in chapter three, if you go back there, Haman hates the Jews and here's the reason why, because he hates Mordecai. If you look at verse number two, three, four, five, six, he's just ticked off because Mordecai isn't bowing down to him and, it, and just trying to brown nose him and treat him with all this fear that everybody else is. And so he gets his focus off of every good thing he's receiving from the king in his promotion. And he's just focused on this dude, Mordecai. He finds out that Mordecai is a, Jews and is a Jew. And so because he hates Mordecai, he wants to kill all of the Jews. 
Now, obviously, he's, something has happened between he and the king, that the king favors him very much. The king trusts him. The, the word of Haman carries weight with the king. And that is no more evident, or it's made very evident in chapter 3, when Haman comes to the king and says, Hey, king, there's these people. They're not really that significant. They're spread abroad all throughout your kingdom. And, and this isn't a reflection of me. This is just how Haman, and you can hear it and see it in the tone in which these words are recorded. They're basically just like vermin. They're like roaches. They're kind of scattered throughout. They're not doing you any good. They're not, they don't really have any value. And they just, king, they just need to be exterminated. They need to be destroyed. So I've got this decree, and I'm going to pay you in order to carry this out. We have this money that we're going to give you. And if just on a certain day, a certain month, if you'll let everyone in the kingdom arm up, and we could just kill all of the Jews, king, that would be great. No problem. Here's the royal signet. Here's the ring. And then it's amazing. They just sit down and have a drink together. That's what the text says. Verse 15, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. Yeah, man, Haman, that's a, that's a great idea. I got a chance to make some money, and you're going to get rid of people that potentially are a threat or could be a nuisance to me. Yeah, we, let's, just, let's just get rid of them all. No, we're, we're not talking about criminals here. We're talking about men and women and old men and older women and children. We're talking about teens. We're talking about infants. We're talking about kids in the second, third, fourth, fifth grade. We are talking about annihilating an entire race of people. Yeah, it's a good idea. Let's get rid of them. They sit down and they have a drink together. And everyone else in the palace is perplexed. Like, what in the world has just happened? What kind of law was just passed that would authorize the extermination of an entire race of people? Well, then a whole lot of stuff happens. We get to chapter 7, and the king is very responsive toward Esther. Now, some things have happened where Haman thought he was on the way up, but then through the sovereign and yet invisible but still very obvious work of God... God begins to turn the heart of the king a little bit, and he begins to expose Haman and bring Haman down. And so if you remember from chapter 6, Haman is terrified when he's on his way to this second feast with the king and Esther. And so the king says to Esther in the same way that he had said before, whatever you want up to half the kingdom. And the point was this, Esther, whatever it is that you desire, I want to fulfill that desire. And so Esther begins to reveal to him, I am coming to you. My desire is not for myself. My, de my desire is not born out of some selfish uh, focus or some self-serving uh, agenda. My desire is for my people. I am here on behalf of the people to whom I belong. And, and King, you need to understand that, that if this wasn't a life or death matter, then I wouldn't have spoken up. But there is someone in your kingdom who is working, who is conniving, who is trying to bring about not just the enslavement of people, but the complete annihilation of people. And King, I must, out of love for them, I must speak up for them. Now the king asked the right question in verse number 5. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. And he didn't say, okay, who is he? All right, all right. 
Okay, Esther, who is he? Just, just tell me. No. He's fired up now. Who is he? And where is he? That there's presume in his heart to do so. You know how it is when you're about to get called out. And you know it's coming. And you're just sweating bullets. Like, oh, great. Here we go. And Esther, without blinking, without hesitating, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. And Haman was afraid before the king and the queen, as he should have been. Notice verse 7. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen. Look, Haman's, Haman's a master of the obvious. Notice this last phrase. For he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. No, we'll deal with Haman more, the Lord willing, in the coming weeks. But, but he understands, uh-oh, I am in serious trouble. Man, this situation has completely turned on its head. In chapter 3, he's the big man on campus. He's the king's pet, the king's favorite. Everything's going great. Now he knows that he is in serious jeopardy of losing his life. And so Esther would be there on this, on this couch or this bed, and she would be eating in a reclined position, in a very relaxed position. And he goes, and the way the text describes it, he literally falls onto the bed. And the king, in his anger, completely misreads what's going on. Now, please do not misunderstand. I'm not defending Haman. Haman was a bad dude who deserved what he got, and I thank God for intervening to protect his people against such violent conniving. I'm not defending Haman, but the king completely misread what was going on. Look look at verse 8. He sees Haman falling on the bed. Here's Haman. Please, Esther, please. No, no, I don't do that to be funny. He's begging for his life. He knows I'm about to die, and the only one who can do anything to help help prevent this is this queen. And so he's laying there, I believe perhaps at, at her feet, saying, please have mercy. And the king comes in. He's already ticked off. He's already worked up. And he says, he sees this and he goes, will he force the, king, the queen in the house in front of me? Completely misreading what was going on. Okay, I want you to understand this. Zero perception of what is actually happening. He just sees something, thinks he knows what's going on. They cover his face, takes him out, and he's executed. I am thankful that God dealt with Haman. We will get to that later. But I want you to see the contrast between the chapter 3 king and the chapter 7 king. Here's the question. Why is King Ahasuerus so cool with it in chapter 3 and so angry about it in chapter 7? Now, please get it. The king was right to be angry in chapter 7. It was a travesty. What had been sanctioned and what had been authorized, whether it was the Jews or any, any other group of people. This kind of targeting and extermination, it was, it is any time it happens, it is and was a travesty, and it deserved the full wrath of the king. But here's my question. Why wasn't he angry about it in chapter 3? Because it was... 
it was no less of a travesty in chapter 3 when it was first sanctioned and authorized and the law was first sent out than it was in chapter 7. Let's go back and think about the king for a minute. Remember Ben and remember Maddie in their extreme fluctuations. In in chapter 1, the king is throwing a party. Remember, he's celebrating everything, and then he's so full of himself, and so he brings Vashti out. And remember this, we don't understand everything that went on, but based on the view of women, based on the, the amount of alcohol that was flowing, and then based on the way he approaches her, he did not want her to come out for virtuous reasons. We don't need to read into it anything the text doesn't say, but it wasn't good. And she refused to be objectified like that. And so he's over here like, Matt, and he's just so excited, and oh yeah, we're going to bring Vashti out. And then she refuses to be used as some kind of tool for his sick, twisted thinking. And so she, she turns him down and says no. Then he's over here like Ben, and he's stomping and throwing a fit. We get into the end of chapter 1. He's so angry that he has her removed as queen. But then after his anger passes, subsides, after he's made this ridiculous decree about his wife and about women, then he has this attitude. You can sense that he begins, to re, he begins to regret how hasty he was. We dealt with that. I did this out of anger, and now it's subsided, and, and I regret what I did. In chapter 3, we have that same king, Haman, his favorite, his favorite prince. Hey, I, th- these people are a nuisance. I'm going to give you some money. Can we kill them all? Yeah, no problem. It's no problem. Chapter 7, here comes his wife, whom he loves. Esther wants him to spare the Jews. These are her people. And his, ad- his attitude is this. This is outrageous. Who would dare do something like this? So again, asking the other question, why the fluctuation? I don't, I don't completely have an answer, and that's not my goal to fully answer Why? But just simply to understand that the king was moved more by the passion of people around him than he was anchored by the truth of God. The passion of people around him had more effect upon the direction of his life than truth had upon his life. Okay, you ready for a real simple truth? Life matters. No, look, 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 I'm, not, I'm not referencing anything political. Don't turn this into that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm going to make a statement here. The king should have been thinking about this. Every single life matters. You know why? Because God created life. God created races. God created people of different races to inhabit all the earth. But they have, all of them have this in common. Like it references in Acts. And hath made of one blood all the nations of men to dwell upon all the face of the earth. And every man and every woman, regardless of race or geographical location, bears in them this similarity. They were created in the image of God. Life, all life, all lives matter to God. You say, well, the king didn't know the Bible. You don't have to know the Bible to know that life matters. should know should know that life matters. But the king isn't about other people. The king's about himself. So, Haman comes along, and rather than being anchored to the truth that life matters, this is the king. Oh, you'll give me money? These people might pose a threat. I don't even know who they are. 
I don't even have enough awareness to know that my wife is one of them because that hadn't been revealed. She had kept that according to the direction of Mordecai. She had kept that secret. I don't even have enough sense to know who my wife is. Just that I think she's pretty and so she's going to be my new wife. This is the kind of man we're talking about. Money, uh, yeah, you're, I really like you. Here we go. Just kill him. I love, I love the passion of Esther. I mean, don't misunderstand. I'm not condemning Esther. Esther did what needed to be done. Esther should not have had to intervene for her people the way that she did. They should have never been in that position, but they were. And thank God that she was there. Thank God that he helped her and used her and that the influence of Mordecai helped her to do what she needed to do. But she comes in and she pleads with the king. Haman is, is, is trying to manipulate the king with hatred. Esther is trying to influence the king with love and she pours her heart out. King, my people are under threat of being destroyed. And if it was something less, if it was less than their life, then I, then I wouldn't speak up like this. But king, they are in danger of being destroyed. Every man, woman, and child, king. And so this is what happens. In chapter 3, the hatred of Haman pulls him way over here. Please stay with me. In chapter 7, the love of Esther pulls him way over here. So he goes from here, the hatred of Haman, to over here, the love of Esther. You know what, he's, he's being moved by the passion of others more than he's being anchored by the truth. Now, I'm thankful again that there was an Esther to speak up to him. But it's a tragedy that this king could be so pulled from one extreme to the other simply by the passion of those who are around him and not anchored by some kind of truth. All right, a couple of things. Number one, you have Hamans in your life. There are people who don't like God. They won't come out and say, I hate God. But the way you live your life is an indication of what you think about God. Jesus said that. <laughs> you don't have to have a sign or make a declaration I hate God, or I hate church, or I, I hate the Bible. The way you live your life is an indication of what you think about God. You want to you live your life moving away from God? That is an indication of what you think about God. You want to live your life towards God, trying to submit to his truth? That is an indication of what you think about God. And there are people in your life that want nothing to do with God. And you know you need to be living your life. Please look at me. You know you need to be living your life in this direction. It's not a mystery. The word of God has revealed it. The truth of God is not hard to understand. Love God and love thy neighbor. And there are things that filter down from that. And there is an awareness and an understanding. But there are people in your life that are like Haman that are trying to to pull you away from living your life in the direction God wants you to live. You have Hamans in your life. And they will manipulate, and they will bribe, and they will flatter, and they will appeal to whatever it is that makes you tick, and just try to get you to come along with them. You have Hamans in your life. Young people, they're at school. 
Parents, they are at work. Sometimes they are in your home. Sometimes they come in the form of romance. Sometimes they come in the form of other people that can be at work or at church or on a team. But there are Hamans that are trying to pull you away from following the truth of God. You also have Esthers in your life. And thank God for them. You know what the Esthers do? Their love for God and their love for people compels them to speak up to you. Now, I'm not talking about anger. Don't, mis- don't misunderstand my passion for anger. I'm not talking about being mad. I'm not talking about throwing a fit. I'm talking about they love you, and so they challenge you. They look you in the face, and they say, the way that this is going isn't the way that it should be going. And it's not about me. It's about the truth of God. And what God has said is obvious. What God has said is very clear. You understand his truth. You know what his truth requires of you. And you need to stop living your life this way because that way it ends in destruction. Haman's way ended in destruction for the Jews. It ended in hurt for the king, for the kingdom. And living against the truth of God ends in destruction and hurt for us. Brothers and sisters, sin still has consequences. And I don't care how good it feels right now. I don't care how affirming it is right now. The road of sin that you are on, whether in your attitude or your lifestyle, it will have consequences at some point. And God brings an Esther into your life who is motivated by love, be it a pastor preaching or a teacher or a friend or a family member who comes along and says, you need to change directions. The truth is obvious. Thank God for the Esthers. I want to say it again. Thank God for the Esthers in our lives. Thank God for the daddies and the mamas who speak up. Man, my heart hurts for moms and dads whose children aren't going the way that they should in areas. In every opportunity I have, I try to encourage those mom and dads. You don't ever quit trying to reach out to them. You don't ever quit praying for them. You don't ever quit loving them. I understand that your heart hurts more than I am able to comprehend. But you don't ever quit being an Esther in their life. As long as you have life and they have life, you keep reaching out to them. Thank God for the Esthers in your life. Thank God for a husband who will speak truth to you. Thank God for a wife who will speak truth to you. Thank God for the word of God. Thank God for a place where you can go to hear it so that you can be confronted about the way you're living your life. Thank God for the Esthers in your life. But please, please understand this. We can become too dependent upon Esthers for the direction that we're living our lives. Look, we've, we've all been susceptible to being led astray, haven't we? Ever happened to you? You didn't even know it was happening. And before long, because of the influence of someone, you've got a bad attitude, you're making a dumb decision, and, you're, and, you, it, and you may not recognize that it's this outside influence, it's this Haman influence. You just know that where you're going and the direction you're headed, your attitude or your course completely contradicts what the Word of God says should be going on. It's like, what, what am I doing here? And what about, what about Esther? God sends an Esther in, like, hey, hey, I love you. This isn't the way. Hey, I care about you. Hey, I, I, I want God's best for you. This isn't the way. I thank God for those people, but we become so dependent upon the Esthers 
And if you're too dependent upon the Esther, here's what that means. You're still susceptible to the Hamans. We eventually need to become positioned and anchored in our lives because of truth. Because of God's truth. Not driven by the passion of others. Let's be honest for a minute. Isn't it amazing how effective other people's passion is on affecting our mood? Okay, you don't think so? Watch the news during the political season. Somebody's fired up. It feeds it, doesn't it? You have a bent a certain way, and, and they're, they're feeding it, stoking it. Yes! I know I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. They feed it. They feed it. You're susceptible. You can be susceptible to a Haman. Now, that look. I'm thankful that we benefit from the passion of an Esther who is anchored to truth and who's willing. I have benefited from that. I'm so thankful for that. I, I, I've I've told you this story. And when I was growing up, as a young man that we were hanging out with and he suggested some things that were godless and he was just he was a Haman and he was going down a down a path that would lead to destruction but then at, at Air Base Road Baptist Church there was a young man named Roger and and Roger we poked fun at Roger all the time but I remember a bunch of talking going on during a service one one Sunday and Roger just stands up from where all the youth are messing around, and he walks up front and sits down and opens his Bible. And he took all kinds of grief from that, but God gave him a voice and an influence. And to a young man that was trying to figure out what he was supposed to be, I recognized an Esther. And I'm not saying I automatically just fixed everything, but I'm, I'm so thankful for that. But if I'm ever going to be effective as a Christian, I can't be dependent upon the Esthers. I have to become and Esther. Look, it's not wrong. It, it's not wrong that you need the influence of others to help you get in the right path. We all need it at different points in our life. And you, let's be honest, you never fully outgrow that. Come on, listen. But, but there are far too many children of God who they are way over here or they are way over here. And it's not based on the truth. It's based on the passion of those people that they're giving the most voice to at the moment. And it's like, oh, you're mad about this, this influence? Well, I'll, I'll come over here. Oh, you're really excited about this? Okay, I'll come over here. And we're, we're driven not by truth. We are pulled by the passion of others. Here's the statement. As a Christian, you should be positioned by God's truth more than you are moved by people's passion. Okay, so let me give you a few application points and we're done. Number one, are there people in your life moving you away from God? This is not complicated. Are there people who are encouraging you to live life away from God? You know what his truth says. You know what his truth says. Are there those people? Well, you need to be aware of them. Are there people in your life trying to move you towards God? You need to be thankful for them. And listen to them. But then that leads us to this question. And I want to ask this. What convictions do you have 
that you wouldn't have if someone else wasn't passionate about the truth? Okay, young people, look at me. Look at me. Guys, look at me. I, I understand you're growing and you're figuring things out. But you can't have this faith and follow this Savior just because your mom and dad do forever. Because that won't last. And you are old enough to, to begin to figure some things out for yourself. You can read the word of God and understand it. And you can begin to, young ladies, you can begin to develop some convictions about how you're going to conduct yourself. Young men, you can begin to develop, and you should be. Young men, you should be developing some convictions about how you're going to treat young ladies. Now, I'll say it again. You should be developing some convictions about how you're going to treat them and that it's going to be with respect and it's going to be with the honor that they deserve and that God didn't create them for your pleasure. He created them because he loves them just like he created you because he loves you. And young ladies, you need to be developing some conviction. That I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to sell myself to get affirmation. That I'm going to trust the plan of God and believe that I have value. And if a young man ever requires of me something that God has forbidden, then he obviously doesn't love me. He obviously does not love me. Look, it's great. It's great you have that conviction while you're living with your dad and mom. But you need to be having that conviction all the time because it's true. Not because of some preacher up here or because of a dad and mom who wants you to have it. You need to have it because you understand this is the plan of God. It's the truth of God. And it's what's best for me. I wonder how many husbands in here, you say you believe stuff just so you'll keep your wife off your back. Look, I'm thankful for everybody coming and being involved in all that. But this nation, specifically Christianity, is in desperate need of men in a culture where masculinity is mocked and degraded and made fun of. We need godly men that stand on truth because it's truth, not because their wives are prodding them to. No, don't misunderstand that. I thank God for the Esther that I have in my home. I thank God for the help that she is to me. I thank God for courageous women in this church who are able to take a stand. But God doesn't just want women taking a stand for Jesus Christ. He wants men that are able to take a stand. I wonder how many men in here get serious about faith because you're nagged into it. I just want to tell you moms and dads, your kids will pick up on that won't last the faith won't faith won't last won't have the same effect do you do you do what you do because of what somebody else around here might think no i'm thankful for positive pressure look i'll say i'm thankful for positive pressure it's helped me it's helped me but I can't be dependent. I can't live my life dependent upon that positive pressure always being there because there are times, there are chapter three moments in your life when that positive pressure isn't there and the evil one is trying to pull you away. And you've got to recognize there's truth and I've got to stand on this truth because it's the right thing to do. Look, pastors can be this way. What's going to get me the most people? 
What's going to keep people from being upset? Oh, y'all, y'all don't like this? Okay, I'll move over here. Oh, you do like this? Okay, we'll adjust it over here. This is what I have to do. I have to figure out what truth is. And then I have to preach it. And I have to try. Flawed, very flawed. I recognize my flaws. And there are even flaws that I have that I, I, don't, I don't recognize that are blind spots. And so God gives you Esther's, hallelujah. I'm thankful for men like our trustees that help me think in different ways. I'm thankful for other men that, that help me to be aware of that. I'm thankful for ladies that have said things to me. I'm thankful for a wonderful lady like Miss June in the office who has a different perspective. I'm thankful for that. But I can't be the kind of pastor that's over here one day and then over here and is out here checking the winds of culture and seeing what's popular and trending on Twitter. I've just got to figure out what truth is and stand there. And whoever comes or goes, that's between them and God. I've got to be where the truth is. And yet there are pastors who are bouncing all over the place. One day they're mad about something, the next day they're all chill about it. It's fine. It's because they, they aren't guided by the truth. They are moved by other people's passion. We are living in a world where people just get so fired up because somebody else is fired up and they don't even really know why they're mad. I'm just mad because they're mad. And if they're mad, I'm going to be mad. And it's wreaking havoc in our nation. It's wreaking havoc in churches. It's wreaking havoc in homes. People being pulled by the passion of others more than they are anchored to the truth. You can be both a Ben and a Maddie. But we need to get to where we're anchored. Anchored to truth. So in your life, in your life, ask yourself these questions. Again, I'll just read the questions one more time and then I'm done. Are there people in your life moving you away from God? Be aware of them. Be aware of their influence on your life. Guard against it. Are there people in your life moving you toward God? Thank God for them. Learn from them. But then you need to learn to stand on your own. So what convictions do you have that you wouldn't have if someone else wasn't passionate about the truth? What about church? What about the word of God? What about serving? What about people? Kids, spouses, families, church members, friends. We need to be positioned by the truth of God, not pulled by the passion of people around us. Let's all stand together. Sure, I'm thankful for your attention. King Ahasuerus, over here. Yeah, let's, let's kill all them. King Ahasuerus over here. Hey, that's my wife's people. Who would dare do that? Well, whether they're your wife's people or not, they're people before God and they matter. What are you doing? We should be positioned by the truth of God more than we are moved by the passion of others. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you to answer these questions. Just raise your hand and put it right back down. We're not going to embarrass anyone in any way. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Number one, are there people in your life trying to move you away from God? You say, yep, I've got those people in my life, and I need to be aware of them, and I need to guard against them. You raise your hand and say, yep, I see them going up. Yep, God bless you for your honesty. Are there people, are there Esthers in your life? You say, I thank God for the Esthers in my life. Man, it's such a help to me. Yeah, I see. Praise the Lord. Now, about this, young people spouses, friends, 
What convictions do you have that you wouldn't have if someone else wasn't passionate about the truth? I wonder if there would be some, with every head bowed and every eye closed, and look, I've been guilty of this. And pretty much, if, any, if everyone that's lived life for any length of time is being honest, they've been guilty of this in some way. But what convictions do you have that you wouldn't if someone else in your life wasn't passionate about that truth? And you say, in this area, I just do it because of them. I haven't really tried to understand what the Bible says and learn it for myself. And I need God's help to develop conviction in my own life based on truth instead of being conviction being based on the passion and preferences of other people. I need that help to develop my own conviction based on God's truth. Would you pray for me? I wonder if there would be anyone that would raise their hand and say, yeah, that's me. Yep, I see it. God bless you. Yep, yep, I see it. Some young people, that's great. Say, I need, I need that for myself. Well, let's be responsive to the Lord. Maybe, maybe you need to make sure that you're being an Esther in somebody's life. It's okay that people need Esther's. It's okay to need them. It's great to be them, but at some point we need to become more than what King Ahasuerus was. We need to be anchored to truth. So while Brother Adam sings, if God has spoken to your heart, you respond to the Lord. Father, I sure am thankful for your goodness to us. Thank you for the example of your word. Please help us to understand it and to receive it. And Lord, ultimately, we're, we're accountable to you and, and not, to any, not to any human. And so I pray that you would help us to work at being right with you, to love you, and to live our lives for you. God, help us to be, help us to be Esthers in the lives of people. Help us to value the influence of the Esthers that you've put into our lives. Help us to be on guard against the influence of Haman's that would pull us away. 
And then, Lord, help us all as we grow in our relationship with you in the grace and faith of Jesus Christ. Help us to develop conviction for living based on the truth that you give to us. Lord, that we wouldn't be pulled by the passion of others, but that we would be anchored to truth. So thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thanks for being good to us. Thank you for a good day together. Pray that you'd bless your people this week. Please protect them, watch over them, encourage them. Lord, fill their cups. And I pray that their lives would be running over with your goodness this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.